Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 22nd, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to present part 29 of our series on the Protocols of Satan, and this part is subtitled, Constitutional Vanity. And I, I pray that by the end of this program we see the reason for that subtitle. In the last two segments of these Protocols of Satan, we chose to present what we had called the Nazis and the Protocols, which was a translation and discussion of the introduction to the 1938 National Socialist publication of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. Some of the material in that introduction relates to later portions of the protocols, however, we wanted to present it all at once. Surely we may cite it again at the appropriate points as we continue our commentary. But our primary reason for making the presentation of the Nazis and the protocols was in response to what the protocols had boasted in reference to the constitutions of states which had embraced liberalism in the recent centuries. In the first part of that introduction to the Protocols, the authors had explained the degree of Jewish involvement in the creation of the various state constitutions of 19th century Germany, as well as that of the later Weimar Republic. Here we shall once again read that latest portion from Protocol Number 3 from the text of Boris Brassow's publication of the Protocols and World Revolution. And the Protocol states, We have included in constitutions rights for which the people, which for the people are fictitious and not actual rights. All these so-called rights of the people can exist only in the abstract and can never be realized in practice. What difference does it make to the toiling proletarian, bent double by heavy toil, oppressed by his fate, that the babblers receive the right to talk, journalists the right to mix nonsense with reason in their writings? If the proletariat has no other gain from the Constitution, than the miserable crumbs which we throw from our table in return for his vote to elect our agents. Think Donald Trump. Republican rights are bitter irony to the poor man, for the necessity of almost daily labor prevents him from using them, and at the same time deprives him of his guarantee of a permanent and certain livelihood by making him dependent upon strikes, organized either by his masters or by his comrades. When we presented the first portion of the Nazis and the Protocols, we discussed the several obstacles which make it nearly impossible for us to assess the content of the various constitutions of the states of 19th century Europe. There we had said that evidently the study of European constitutions is one academic area that has been given little attention. That probably explains why the original source material which has been published is priced so dearly. We then cited at least one academic scholar, 
Max Edling of King's College in London to substantiate that opinion. There is a German website with a rather lengthy name, Constitutions of the World from the Late 18th Century to the Middle of the 19th Century Online, which offers free access to facsimiles of many such documents, but the original languages and the format in which they are published are beyond our immediate comprehension. In any event, if we could read Italian, French, and German, the scope of the study necessary to formulate any viable conclusions is well beyond the resources available for these presentations of the Protocols of Satan. We can, however, comment on a constitution which is much more familiar to us, and that is our own American constitution. First, let me state that in spite of all the scoffers, there is no doubt in my mind that at least most of the creators of the United States Constitution were good Christian men who had good intentions. Even if they were Freemasons, in the late 19th century, American Freemasonry was not yet infected with the sordid ideals of the Jacobins and the Bavarian Illuminati, I'm sorry, in the late 18th century. However, they were infected with liberalism, for which there is no doubt, as much of Europe and also American philosophical thought had been infected with liberalism throughout the period following the so-called Glorious Revolution. We account that as the occasion when the merchants and bankers had finally solidified their control of England. The glorious revolution resulted in a Bill of Rights, in a new king, and, most importantly, in a privately controlled central bank, so an illusion, an illusion of freedom was accompanied by a guarantee of eventual slavery in the precise model which is outlined in the protocols. The American Constitution is nothing more than a contract between otherwise sovereign states which chose to voluntarily forfeit a portion of their sovereignty for the benefit of mutual trade, mutual diplomacy and defense, and general cooperation with their neighbor states. It is not a comprehensive document. And it was only inferred in the body of the Constitution that all other aspects of government were to be left forever to the individual states. It seems that most Americans have never actually read the document, but nevertheless consider themselves to be knowledgeable of its contents. Just like their Bible. They haven't actually read it, but they're all experts. Most Americans are quite ignorant in that regard. While we will not discuss it here, the original Union of States in the Articles of Confederation was not perfect. The Articles were in many ways better than the Constitution that replaced them, but they also had their flaws. Most importantly, both systems allowed the central government to yield power to privately owned banks, so neither had the advantage in that respect. While the Constitution did such things as fix the value of dollar of the dollar in gold or in silver, today even that is not worth the paper it is written upon. It was trampled. 
All such agreements require a degree of compromise. And for many men, the compromise in the making of the Constitution was far too great to bear, for various reasons. The American Constitution did not safeguard the original values of the people who formed the Republic. With all their good intentions, they failed. For example, because diverse states contained majority populations of Christians of one denomination or another, such as the Anglicans or future Episcopalians, the Anglican Church becoming the Episcopalian during the Revolution, the Anglicans of Virginia and the Puritans of Massachusetts, the Lutherans of Pennsylvania or the Catholics of Maryland, because diverse states contain majority populations of Christians of one denomination or another, all mention of religion was omitted because all parties feared subjection to a single state religion, even if that religion was Christian in nature. Outside of its colonial context, the objectives and purposes of the American Constitution are little understood, and it is easily corrupted for that reason. It must be noted, for instance, that the colony of Virginia officially sanctioned and financially supported the Anglican Church by taxation right up to the Revolution. One of the cases, court cases, that made James Madison a famous lawyer as a young man sought to break the official support of Virginia for the Anglican Church, and it failed. Madison was not anti-Christian, and he once trained for the clergy, but instead became a lawyer, just like John Adams had originally chained, trained for the clergy, but instead became a lawyer. However, Madison was against the concept of a, straight, of a state church, and that was the fear. James Madison nevertheless took a significant part in the writing of the Constitution, but there were a great number of anti-federalists, including Samuel Adams, Patrick Henry, and George Mason. These men and others opposed the Constitution of 1787 because they understood that it would create a federal government which was far too powerful, and that would in turn help to facilitate the emergence of an elite ruling class. In the end, the Anti-Federalists had of course failed to prevent the adoption of the Constitution. Their objections did lead to the inclusion of the Bill of Rights, but even that was an afterthought. And this is my biggest problem with the Constitution here, as a document, aside from the fact that it neglects to admit God, which we will also explain that the significance of here. There are significant problems with the Bill of Rights which most Americans do not even know of, and if they did know, would probably still not understand. The Bill of Rights was written by the Anti-Federalist George Mason, who presented them to James Madison. Once Madison had them, he wanted them included in the main body of the Constitution. Even John Adams with all of his later treachery, and we will discuss that, wrote to Thomas Jefferson expressing the belief that the Bill of Rights should have been included in the original body of the Constitution, not as an amendment tacked on later. Thomas Jefferson believed so also, 
However, the original Constitution would again have to be ratified. So instead, the Bill of Rights, which originally contained 17 amendments, was presented to the first Congress. The story goes that 12 of the amendments had passed the Senate, but only the 10 which we have were ratified by the states. I say the story goes because there are men who believe that there were some evil doings going on there in the background, and it's some of those amendments which weren't ratified probably were. That's another story which we're not going to get into. It's a diversion to us, and of course in hindsight. This is all representative of a significant failure on the part of the Founders, not to include mention of God and Christ in the Constitution, and not to include the original Bill of Rights in the main body of the document. The result is, the result is first, that those rights may be perceived as having come from the government, from the Congress instead of from God. And second, rather than the Bill of Rights becoming a part of the document which authorized the Congress, the Bill of Rights became a law which the Congress authorized. Wow, there's a world of difference there. What Congress creates, Congress can take away. When presented to Congress, even the Bill of Rights had opposition from Federalists such as Alexander Hamilton. However, many opponents to the Bill of Rights simply thought that those rights were natural and that the inference that the Constitution did not grant the new government any power to deny them was enough to protect them. A lot of men distrusted that theory. (laughs) They didn't like that at all. This is another reason why the Constitution cannot be properly understood outside of its original colonial context. In regard to this, we said in a presentation given here some years ago that if man believes that his rights are endowed by the Creator, as the founders of this nation recognized, then man understands that those rights are inalienable. If man believes that his morals are passed down from God, as the founders of this nation also recognized, then man understands that those morals are immutable. Yet man has allowed the devils to litigate God out of modern society, and therefore now we have no rights and no morals. What facilitated that litigation most easily are not only the general welfare and interstate commerce clauses of the Constitution, but the fact that even through the fo- even through even though the founders did indeed believe that their rights and their morals come from God. In the preamble to the Bill of Rights, there is no mention of God, and it is only stated that they are granted on a proposal by Congress. As Joshua Christ had said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So long as man thinks that his rights and liberties come from the governments of men, then the governments of men shall be his gods. The American Constitution, like all such documents of man, was flawed from its very inception. What is clear is that the Bill of Rights had little power to protect the rights of anyone under an oppressive government. When John Adams was elected president, he imprisoned men who disagreed with his administration. 
Thomas Jefferson took office and set them at liberty. But then, Thomas Jefferson had no problem using public funds and the new nation's young navy to protect private mercantile interests across the ocean in the Mediterranean Sea. But that is another story entirely. American commercial imperialism began with Thomas Jefferson, and it was in the defense of mostly Jewish interests. In an article titled The Alien and Sedition Acts, Defining American Freedom posted at a website for the Constitutional Rights Foundation, we read this. When John Adams succeeded George Washington as president in 1797, the Federalist Party had controlled Congress and the rest of the national government from the beginning of the new nation. Adams and the other Federalists believed that their political party was the government. The Federalists believed that once the people had elected their political leaders, no one should publicly criticize them. So I guess John Adams was the first evil Nazi. (laughs) I'm just making a, a, a joke. The Federalist Party, led by Alexander Hamilton, a joke from a leftist viewpoint. The Federalist Party, led by Alexander Hamilton, aimed to create a stable and secure country, safe for business and wealthy men of property. The opposition Democratic-Republican Party was bitterly opposed to the Federalists, led by Thomas Jefferson. It tended to represent poor farmers, craftsmen, and recent immigrants. The party was commonly referred to as the Republicans or the Jeffersonians. It was the forerunner of today's Democratic Party, and a far cry from it. It's foreign affairs. In foreign affairs, the Federalists detested the French Revolution of 1789 because it led to mob rule and confiscation of property. The Republicans supported the French Revolution for its democratic ideals. And I'm sure they didn't have the whole story. Compounding the tyrannical attitude of the Federalists was the infamous XYZ affair, which resulted in the scare of war with France. This scare was used to push through, the con- push through Congress two acts, the Alien Act and the Sedition Act. In another paper, an article titled The Sedition Act of 1798 by Gordon Belt, we read the following as an introduction to a list of Sedition Act cases. We won't go into the individual cases. Some of them are pretty funny. One couple of guys got locked up in a bar in New Jersey just for threatening John Adams when he passed through Newark, or just for speaking threats towards John Adams as he passed through New Jersey. I I mean, that's pretty funny. For guys in a bar drinking to get locked up because of a sedition act, which is exactly what happened. In 1798, the Alien and Sedition Acts were signed into law by President John Adams in response to fears of an impending war with France. These acts, consisting of four laws passed by the Federalist-controlled Congress, increased the residency requirement for American citizenship from 5 to 14 years, authorized the President to imprison or deport aliens considered dangerous to the peace and safety of the United States, and restricted speech critical of the government. While the Federalists, led by 
Alexander Hamilton and Adams argued that these laws were passed to protect the United States from foreign invaders and propagandists. Democratic Republicans, led by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, saw the Alien and Sedition Acts as a direct threat to individual liberty and the First Amendment by a tyrannical government. The Alien and Sedition Acts were fiercely debated in the press, which was overtly partisan at the time. Many editors of the of Democratic-Republican-sponsored newspapers vehemently opposed the new laws, in particular the Sedition Act, which made speaking openly against the government a crime of libel, punishable by fine and even prison time. Federalists sought to quell dissent by prosecuting those who violated the Sedition Act to the fullest extent of the law. Accounts vary about the number of arrests and indictments that occurred as a result of the passage of the Sedition Act of 1798. Most scholars cite 25 arrests and at least 17 verifiable indictments, 14 under the Sedition Act and 3 under common law. Ten indictments went to trial, all resulting in convictions. Because these laws were designed to silence and weaken the Democratic-Republican Party, most of the victims of the sedition prosecutions were Democratic-Republican journalists who openly criticized Adams's presidency and the Federalists. But one of the indicted individuals, James Callender, from Thomas Jefferson's home state of Virginia, was from the Federalist-dominated New England and Middle Atlantic states, all but one. Only Callender was from Virginia, I'm sorry. Symbolically enough, Callender's sentence ended on March 3rd, 1801, the day the Sedition Act expired, the, the month that Thomas Jefferson became president. Here is where we see the words of this third of the Protocols fulfilled, almost immediately under our own Constitution, where it said we have included in Constitutions rights for which the people are fictitious and not actual rights. All the so-called rights of the people can exist only in the abstract and can never be realized in practice. Even if in the creation of our American Constitution the Jewish hand was insignificant, that same Jewish hand was nevertheless behind the vain ideals of liberalism which inspired its writers in the first place. Other tyrannical outbursts which persecuted government dissenters are found during the War of Northern Aggression on the part of Lincoln, who arrested government opponents in the North. During the First World War, the Alien Act was used by Woodrow Wilson against Germans to suppress dissent. During the Second World War, the Roosevelt administration held a series of sedition trials, which had the effect of binding the hands of dozens of prominent dissenters, even if they couldn't get a conviction. All of these are examples of the trampling of the so-called rights of the people by opposition office holders for political purposes. The Bill of Rights, in other words, does not defend your rights. You think it does. We could talk about the transgressions about the imaginary right to keep and bear arms all night and probably in the next year. 
if we if we wanted to cite every transgression against that right, which isn't a right at all. You could jump up and down and scream all you want that they can't take your guns away, but when they want to take your guns away, they'll do it. And most Americans will just gladly give their guns away. I know they will. I've seen the mentality, the herd mentality, far too many times. Earlier in Protocol Number 3, we had read the following. The Constitution scales of these days will shortly break down. For we have established them with a certain lack of accurate balance in order that they may oscillate incessantly until they wear through the pivot on which they turn. In Protocol 10 we read, By such measure we shall obtain the power of destroying little by little, step by step, all that at the outset when we enter on our rights we are compelled to introduce into the constitutions of states to prepare for the transition to an imperceptible abolition of every kind of constitution. And then the time has come to turn every form of government into our despotism. And Henry Ford in The International Jew talked about that particular technique at length as it was introduced here in the United States. We won't get into that this evening, but we will cover that in depth, Yahweh willing, at some point in the future. It seems that the money powers, the interests of the wealthy merchants and bankers, were operating within the Federalist Party in early America, and they did indeed seek to obtain the objectives outlined in these protocols. Perhaps some of these are only the natural objectives of the wealthy who wish to maintain their wealth at the expense of others. But it certainly seems that more sinister forces were at play in the purposeful suppression of free political speech. Even more nefarious objectives in this regard are outlined in Protocols 11 and 16, which we shall reserve for future discussions on the imposition of tyranny through bureaucracy, We had already touched on that concept earlier in these presentations. In any event, later in Protocol Number 3, we read a representation of the opposite extreme, where it says that if it is taken for granted that the idea of liberty is just, then all concepts of authority are put on the defensive, because the authority must continually justify itself in the restriction of unbridled liberty. So the authors of the Protocols understood that under liberalism, order and liberty can constantly be manipulated into opposition to one another. And we agree. They are forever in opposition to one another. But only so long as God and Christ are left out of the equation. And the American Constitution did precisely that. The founders may not have omitted God from their document for the same reasons that the Jews would disdain any mention of God, but they omitted him nevertheless, and their liberalism rendered their document sterile in the defense of the Republic. Here, aside from the impotency of constitutions, in Protocol Number 3 we read, in relation to the rights of the people, the following. 
What difference does it make to the toiling proletarian, bent double by heavy toil? This is a repeat of part of what we read earlier this evening. Oppressed by his fate, that the babblers receive the right to talk, journalists the right to mix nonsense with reason in their writings. If the proletariat has no other gain from the Constitution than the miserable crumbs which we throw from our table in return for his vote to elect our agents. The authors of the Protocols have boasted at great length that they who control the gold would become the new masters of the world as soon as the system of liberalism replaced the hereditary nobility. We have already fully demonstrated that their confidence stemmed from the fact that they had already controlled the press, and they knew that they would maintain control of the press. Once the society was made, quote-unquote, free, there was no real way to remove the international Jews from control of either money or the press. So while most men tied to the labors of their vocations would never be able to adequately exercise their rights to assembly and freedom of speech to any significant degree, the babblers who were able to exercise the right to talk would forever be in the employ of the authors of the protocols. That is where we remain today. Even now we have an illusion of free speech on this new medium which we call the Internet. But even there, where someone with a small blog has the potential to reach millions of people, the odds are incredibly stacked against him, and the posterity of the authors of the protocols can drown him out in a sea of noise and contention. Whoever they cannot silence, they seem to be able to purchase. And as a digression, I'm going to rant a little on an example of that. As a digression, I have an axe to grind against one such blogger, which is Andrew Anglin of the Daily Stormer. He is the ideal example of how someone can pretend to be something that they aren't, and can help to lead an entire opposition movement into perdition, nullifying any viable threat to the established Jewish hegemony. The biggest voices of the so-called alt-right are almost all Jews and sodomites. We described many of them in a recent presentation that we entitled Gatekeepers of the Alt-Right. Or is it alt-wrong? And of course it's alt-wrong. And it's all wrong. But the Daily Stormer made a name for itself by being anti-Jew and anti-Sodomite and captured a large share of the potential alt-right leadership and support. Now that he has the support, Andrew Anglin is clearly distancing himself from his originally stated purpose. We do not believe that he was ever sincere, but rather we believe that he, with his bed partner David Duke, who also has a close relationship with the rival, the rival website Stormfront, are all an example of the protocols in action. So we wrote the following in a recent posting at the Christagenia Forum, and we will edit it slightly here. Aside from his recently invented and quite comical claims that Sharia law is originally a product of white society, speaking about the babblers and the right they had to babble, Andrew Anglin is heavily promoting many known Jews. Why would he do that? 
It's not just Stephen Molyneux, who he's been promoting for several years, or Mike Cernovich, who are both known Jews, but who are often defended by naive white nationalists who think they are white or believe the disclaimers. Now Anglin is doing something far more treacherous. After a hiatus of several months, he is once again promoting Mike Enoch. At the Daily Stormer, Andrew Anglin recently promoted Cernovich in an article titled Mike Cernovich on Getting Assaulted for Old Memes. Whether or not the post is complimentary really does not matter, as it is certainly promoting the Jew. Cernovich is just one more Jewish clown who has jumped in front of the alt-right parade. The entire alt-right parade existed to make sure that the Jewish agent, Donald Trump, was elected. That Stephen Molyneux is Jewish should be without question, as we have posted in a video from his own mouth under the title, Stephen Molyneux is Jewish. No more denials, please. We don't want to hear them. In that video, Molyneux professes that his mother was born into a Jewish family in Berlin in 1937. You don't say those things with a slip of the tongue. You don't say that by accident. And he implied that as a young girl she had suffered during the Second World War. Yet Andrew Anglin has posted at least seven articles promoting Stefan Molyneux so far this year. Additionally, of all the people exposing the facts behind what is known as Pizzagate. Andrew Anglin has chosen to promote the work of the admitted Jew, David Seaman. This he did in two very recent articles, posted on March 26th and 27th of this year, and at least five other articles in late 2016. The more Andrew Anglin tests the waters and gets away with promoting Jews to the so-called alt-right, the more kosher he gets. The final proof is in his latest act of treachery. Now Andrew Anglin is promoting the return of the alt-right program called Fash the Nation. And he is even proclaiming the Jazz Hand McFeels character, that's a pseudonym of one of the co-hosts of the program. Anglin is even proclaiming him as a hero. While Anglin did not explicitly mention Mike Enoch in his promotion, Mike Enoch, who was without doubt just this past January, exposed as a Jew, has returned as the lead program host and is included in the list of hosts at the website for the right stuff which hosts Fash the Nation it's all part of the same operation for the episode which Anglin posted episode number 147 called the mother of all black pills which Anglin is promoting and Anglin could not have overlooked this situation unintentionally Of course, Anglin never condemned Mike Enoch after his doxing, as it's called, after it was posted online that Mike Enoch, the famous 
anti-Semitic radio host was actually a Jew himself. And England's idol, David Duke, even defended Enoch after he was doxxed. They divert attention to the fact that it was first learned that Enoch, who plays the anti-Semite on all of his programs, was merely married to a Jewish woman. However, it has been proven beyond doubt, and from his own words, that Mike Enoch himself is a Jew. Enoch is no better than the stereotypical race-baiting rabbi found spraying swastikas on his own synagogue. How can anyone take Andrew Anglin seriously? This race-mixing punk who was promoting the destruction of whites on radio as recently as 2012 is playing white nationalists everywhere. He's making fools of every one of them that reads his website. He's making fools of every one of them that supports him. He is not serious about white interests. He is only a clown constantly pushing the envelope to see what he could get stupid white nationalists to believe. This is an example straight out of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, where the Jews boast that people will follow their agents, whom they place at the lead of all opposition movements. I am more and more convinced, however, that the greater number of Daily Stormer forum posters are actually Jews themselves. The Jewish Internet Defense Force and the Jewish Defense League must be supplying over half of his website visits, if not more. The same thing has been going on at Stormfront for years. The continual defense of Andrew Anglin's actions in their comment sections is beyond pathetic and their constant attacks on Christianity are even more pathetic. It is so obvious that so many of his readers are shilling for the Jews that the Daily Stormer is without doubt the extreme manifestation of Jewish-controlled opposition on the Internet. As we witness in the Gospels, the Jews always devised creative ways or simply used outright political pressure to lead most people astray. They are still doing that same thing even on the Internet. This has been a digression, but it reflects the extreme state of opposition media today, which is, a, which is hopelessly lost in a sea of disparate voices, some of which are paid chills and some of which are useful idiots. It is quite difficult sometimes to separate one group from the other. That's the protocols that work in the modern world. And still work they do. In conclusion this evening, no real opposition can rise up because the Jews have been banging the drums to lead the entire alt-right parade. And there's no traditional conservative movement left. In conclusion this evening, we are going to present something a little different. We want to understand just how far we have fallen in our vain quest for liberty. And if we do, then we must revisit our more rustic roots and examine what life was like at the beginning of the quest.
So here we are going to present an article which describes a speech given in Congress by a man who had a depth of character that has been concealed by popular myth. Doing this, we may better see what the American Constitution meant to at least a few patriotic but common people only a few decades after its acceptance. And we may also see some of the errors of perception, which facilitated its subversion by the class of the wealthy and how those, how early those errors were made. Davy Crockett was a member of Congress for several terms in the 1920s and 30s for the 9th District of the State of Tennessee. They weren't continuous terms. He actually won a couple of elections and then lost an election and then was re-elected several times from the 9th District of the State of Tennessee, which at that time included the city of Memphis. We are doing this to show just how quickly the United States Congress had become entangled in meddling in fiscal matters which deprived one portion of the citizenry in favor of another. The result was a slippery slope towards Marxism. But few seemed to notice the dangers even then. This was published in the Barnes Review, is where we found it, in Volume 11, Issue 5, for September-October 2005, under the title, Representative David Crockett Gives a Lesson on the Constitution. It was an article which he himself is said to have written, and his initial speech at the beginning of the article was titled, The Public's Money is Not Yours to Give. An editorial note states that one day in the House of Representatives, a bill was taken up appropriating money for the benefit of a widow of a distinguished naval officer. Several beautiful speeches had been made in its support. The speaker was just about to put the question to a vote when Representative David Crockett arose and spoke. Here's the story in Crockett's own words. The public's money is not yours to give by Representative David Crockett. And he begins with his speech. Mr. Speaker, I have as much respect for the memory of the deceased and as much sympathy for the suffering of the living, if there be, as any man in this house. But we must not permit our respect for the dead or our sympathy for the part of the living to lead us into an act of injustice to the balance of the living. I will not go into an argument to prove that Congress has not the power to appropriate this money as an act of charity. This is in 1833, I believe, or 1834. Every member on this floor knows it. We have the right, as individuals, to give away as much of our own money as we please in charity. But as members of Congress, we have no right to appropriate a dollar of the public money. Some eloquent appeals have been made to us upon the ground that it is a debt due the deceased. Mr. Speaker, the deceased lived long after the close of the war. He was in office to the day of his death, and I have never heard that the government was in arrears to him. Every man in his house knows that this is not a debt. We cannot, without the grossest corruption, 
appropriate this money as the payment of a debt. We have not the semblance of authority to appropriate it as charity. Mr. Speaker, I have said we have the right to give as much money of our own as we please. I am the poorest man on this floor. I cannot vote for this bill, but I will give one week's pay to the object, meaning to the widow, and if every member of Congress will do the same, it will amount to more than the bill asks. He took a seat. Nobody replied. The bill was put upon its passage, and instead of passing unanimously, as was generally supposed, and as, no doubt, it would have, but for that speech, it received but few votes, and of course was lost. Later, when asked by a friend why he had opposed the appropriation, Crockett gave this explanation in his own words, and I'm sorry, this speech was more likely towards the first term of Davy Crockett's time in Congress, or perhaps the second, I believe. I believe it must be the second term. It was probably given in 1926 or 27, I think. Or thereabouts. Crockett gave this explanation in his own words of why he had opposed the appropriation. Several years ago, I was one evening standing on the steps of the Capitol with some members of Congress, when our attention was attracted by a great light over in Georgetown. It was evidently a large fire. We jumped into a, into a hack, or a carriage, and drove over as fast as we could. In spite of all that could be done, many houses were burned and families were made houseless. And besides, some of them had lost all but the clothes they had on. The weather was very cold, and when I saw many children suffering, I felt that something ought to be done. The next morning, a bill was introduced appropriating $20,000 for their relief. We put aside all other business and rushed it through as soon as it could be done. And that was probably in Crockett's first term, in the mid-20s, 25 or 26, around there. The next summer, when it began to be time to think about elections, I concluded I would take a scout around among the boys of my district. I had no opposition, but as the election was some time off, I did not know what might turn up. When riding one day in a part of my district in which I was more of a stranger than any other, I saw a man in a field plowing and coming toward the road. I gauged my gait so that we should meet up as he came up. I spoke to the man, he replied politely, but as I thought, rather coldly. I began, well, friend, I am one of those unfortunate beings called candidates. This must be when Crockett's running for his second term, during which he gave the speech concerning the widow. Yes, I know, you are Colonel Crockett, the man said. I have seen you once before, and voted for you the last time you were elected. I suppose you are out electioneering now, but you would better not waste your time or mine. I shall not vote for you again. And Crockett says that this was a sockdologer, we may say a slap in the face. I begged him, tell me what was the matter. Well, Connell, well Colonel, it is hardly worthwhile to waste your time or words upon it. I do not see how it can be mended. But you gave a vote last winter that shows that either you have not the capacity to understand the Constitution, or that you are wanting in the honesty and firmness to be guided by it.
In either case, you are not the man to represent me. But I beg your pardon for expressing it that way. I do not intend to avail myself of the privilege of the constituent to speak plainly to a candidate for the purpose of insulting you or wounding you. I intend by it, and this is a farmer talking to Davy Crockett, I intend by it to say only that your understanding in the Constitution is very different from mine, and I will say to you what, but for my rudeness, I should not have said that I believe you to be honest. But an understanding of the Constitution different from mine I cannot overlook, because the Constitution, to be worth anything, must be held sacred and rigidly observed in all its provisions. The man who wields power and misinterprets it is the more dangerous, the more honest he is. Though I live in the backwoods and seldom go from home, I take the papers from Washington and read very carefully all of the, all of the proceedings of Congress. My papers say you voted for a bill to appropriate $20,000 to some sufferers by fire in Georgetown. Is that true? And Crockett replies, Well, my friend, I may as well own up. You have got me there. But certainly nobody will complain that a great and rich country like ours should give the insignificant sum of $20,000 to relieve its suffering women and children, particularly with a full and overflowing treasury. And I am sure if you had been there, you would have done just the same as I did. So the man answers, and he says, It is not the amount, Colonel, that I complain of. It is the principle. In the first place, the government ought to have in the treasury no more than enough for its legitimate purposes. But that has nothing to do with the question. The power of collecting and dispersing money at pleasure is the most dangerous power that can be entrusted to man, particularly under our system of collecting revenue by a tariff which reaches every man in the country, no matter how poor he may be. And the poorer he is, the more he pays in proportion to his means. What is worse, it presses upon him without his knowledge where the weight centers. For there is not a man in the United States who can ever guess how much he pays to the government. And that was in the 1820s. So you can see that while you are contributing to relieve one, you are drawing it from thousands who are even worse off than he. If you had the right to give anything, the amount was simply a matter of discretion with you. But you had as much right to give 20 million as 20,000. If you have the right to give at all, and as the Constitution neither defines charity nor stipulates the amount, you are at liberty to give to any and everything which you may believe or profess to believe is a charity, and to any amount you may think proper. You will very easily perceive that a wide door, what a wide door this would be open for fraud and corruption and favoritism on the one hand, and for robbing people on the other. No, Colonel, Congress has no right to give charity. Individual members may give as much of their own money as they please, but they have no right to touch a dollar of the public money for that purpose. If twice as many houses had been burned in this county as in Georgetown, meaning in far western Pennsylvania, 
Neither you nor, I'm sorry, Tennessee, neither you nor any other member of Congress would have thought of appropriating a dollar for our relief. There are about 240 members of Congress. If they had shown their sympathy for the sufferers by contributing each one a week's pay, it would have made over $13,000. There are plenty of wealthy men around Washington who could have given $20,000 without depriving themselves of even a luxury of life. The congressmen chose to keep their own money, which, if reports be true, some of them spend not very creditably. And the people about Washington, no doubt, applauded you for relieving them from necessity of giving what was not yours to give. The people have delegated to Congress, by the Constitution, the power to do certain things. To do these, it is authorized to collect and pay monies and for nothing else. Everything beyond this is usurpation and the violation of the Constitution. So you see, Colonel, you have violated the Constitution in what I consider a vital point. It is a precedent fraught with danger to the country. For when Congress once begins to stretch its power beyond the limits of the Constitution, there is no limit to it and no security for the people. I have no doubt you acted honestly, but that does not make it any better, except that, as far as you are personally concerned, and you see that I cannot vote for you. Crockett responds, not to the man, but in his letter, and he says, I tell you, I felt street. I saw, if I should have opposition, that this man should go to talking, and in that district, I was a gone fawn skin, meaning a dead deer skin, or a dead duck. I could not answer him, and the fact is, I was so fully convinced that he was right, I did not want to. But I must satisfy him, and I said to him, Well, my friend, you hit the nail upon the head when you said I had not sense enough to understand the Constitution. I intended to be guided by it, and I thought I had studied it fully. I have heard many speeches in Congress about the powers of Congress, but what you have said here at your plow has got more hard sound sense in it than all the fine speeches I ever heard. If I had ever taken the view of it that you have, I would have put my head into the fire before I would have given that vote. And if you will forgive me and vote for me again, if I ever vote for another unconstitutional law, I wish I may be shot. He laughingly, he laughingly replied, Yes, Colonel, you have sworn to that once before, but I will trust you again upon one condition. You are convinced that your vote was wrong. Your acknowledgement of it will do more good than beating you for it. If, as you go around the district, you will tell people about this vote, and that you are satisfied it was wrong, I will not only vote for you, but will do what I can to keep down opposition. And perhaps I may exert some little influence in that way. If I don't, Crockett responding, if I don't, I said, I wish I may be shot, and to convince you that I am in earnest in what I say, I will come back this way in a week or ten days, and if you will get up a gathering of people and will make a speech to them, 
Get up a barbecue, and I will pay for it. The man replied, No, Colonel. We are not rich in this section, but we have plenty of provisions to contribute for a barbecue, and some to spare for those who have none. The push of crops will be over in a few days, and we can then afford a day for a barbecue. I will see to it getting up on Saturday. Come to my house on Friday, and we will go together, and I promise you a very respectable crowd to see and hear you. Crockett responds, Well, I will be here. But one more thing before I say goodbye, I must know your name. And the man said, My name is Bunce. And Crockett, recognizing the name, said, Not Horatio Bunce. And the man said, Yes. Well, Mr. Bunce, I never saw you before. Though you say that you have seen me, but I know you very well. I am glad I have met you, and very proud that I may hope to have you for my friend. Now Crockett editorializes, and he says that it was one of the luckiest hits of my life that I met him. He mingled but little with the public, but was widely known for his remarkable intelligence, and for a heart brimful and running over with kindness and benevolence, which showed themselves not only in words, but in acts. He was the oracle of the whole country around him, and his fame had extended far beyond the circle of his immediate acquaintances. Though I had never met him before, I had heard much of him, but for this meeting it is very likely I should have had opposition, and had been beaten. One thing is very certain, no man could now stand up in that district under such a vote. At the appointed time I was at his house, having told our conversation to every crowd I had met, and to every man I had stayed all night with, and I found that it gave the people an interest and confidence in me stronger than I had ever seen manifested before. Though I was considerably fatigued when I reached his house, and under ordinary circumstances should have gone early to bed, I kept him up until midnight talking about the principles and affairs of government, and got more real, true knowledge of them than I had got all my life before. I have known and seen much of him since, for I respect him. No, that is not the word. I reverence and love him more than any living man, and I go to see him two or three times every year. And I will tell you, sir, if everyone who professes to be a Christian lived and acted and enjoyed it as he does, the religion of Christ would take the world by storm. But to return to my story, the next morning we went to the barbecue, and to my surprise found about a thousand men there. I met a good many whom I had not known before. And they and my friend introduced me around until I had gotten pretty well acquainted. At least they all knew me. In due time, notice was given that I would speak to them. They gathered up around a stand that had been erected. I opened my speech by saying, Fellow citizens, I present myself before you today feeling like a new man. My eyes 
have lately been open to truths which ignorance or prejudice, or both, had heretofore hidden from my view. I feel that I can today offer you the ability to render you more valuable service than I have ever been able to render before. I am here today for more for the purpose of acknowledging my error than to seek your votes. That I should make this acknowledgement is due to myself as well as to you. Whether you will vote for me is a matter for your consideration only. I went on to tell him about the fire and my vote for the appropriation, and then told them why I was satisfied it was wrong. I closed by saying, and now, fellow citizens, it remains only for me to tell you that the most of the speech you have listened to with so much interest was simply a repetition of the arguments by which your neighbor, Mr. Bunce, convinced me of my error. It is the best speech I ever made in my life. But he is entitled to the credit for it. And now I hope he is satisfied with his convert, Crockett referring to himself, and that he will get up here and tell you so. Horatio Bunce came up to the stand and said, Fellow citizens, it affords me great pleasure to comply with the request of Colonel Crockett. I have always considered him a thoroughly honest man, and I am satisfied that he will faithfully perform all that he has promised you today. He went down, and there went up from that crowd such a shout for David Crockett as his name never called forth before. Crockett said, I am not much given to fears, editorializing again. I am not much given to tears, but I was taken with a choking then and felt some big drops rolling down my cheeks. And I tell you now that the remembrance of those few words spoken by such a man and the honest hearty shout they produced is worth more to me than all the honors I have received and all the reputation I have ever made or ever shall make as a member of Congress. Now here Crockett ends his recollection of those past events and his meeting and association with Horatio Bunce. Now the article continues with Crockett speaking to the gentleman who had at the first asked him why he had made the speech in Congress concerning the wrongful attempt to appropriate money to the naval officer's widow. Now, sir, concluded Crockett, you know why I made that speech yesterday. There is one thing to which I will call your attention. You remember that I proposed to give a week's pay in his original speech to Congress. Crockett had said, I cannot vote for this bill, but I will give one week's pay to the object. And if every member of Congress will do the same, it will amount to more than the bill asks. And he continues to say, There are in that House, meaning the House of Representatives, many very wealthy men, men who think nothing of spending a week's pay, or a dozen of them, for a dinner or a wine party, when they have something to accomplish by it. Some of those same men made beautiful speeches upon the great debt of gratitude which the country owed the deceased, the naval officer, a debt which could not be paid by money, and the insignificance and worthlessness of money 
particularly so insignificant a sum as $20,000, when weighed against the honor of the nation. Yet not one of them responded to my proposition. Money with them is nothing but trash when it is to come out of the people. But it is the one great thing for which most of them are striving, and many of them sacrifice honor, integrity, and justice to obtain it. Sounds just like our politicians today, and for most of the last 200 years, and to hell with the Constitution. This is, to me, one of the better stories I've ever read, illustrating the problems that have been inherent in the American congressional system from the very beginning, and the total ignorance and disregard for the Constitution which, like the dollar, isn't worth the paper it's written on. I'm going to repeat some of the sidebar notes published for this article in the Barnes Review, and evidently written by one of the editors of that publication. David Crockett's reputation as a buckskin-clad bear hunter, sharpshooter, militia officer, and storyteller brought him national attention by the 1830s. He's not remembered for most of that, right? He had been the model for Nimrod Wildfire, the name of a character, the hero of James Kirk Paulding's play, The Lion of the West. This play was very popular, and Crockett himself became a model for the heroic American frontiersman. Crockett was born in 1786 in what is now Greene County, Tennessee, which is in eastern Tennessee, while his political career was in the western part of the state. He had little formal schooling and ran away from home. He later returned to his family, but was soon off again. He became a skilled hunter out of necessity. He joined General Andrew Jackson in the Creek campaigns of 1813 and 14 marking the beginning of a stormy relationship for the two Tennesseans. Crockett was elected to the state legislature in 1820 and re-elected in 1822. He was defeated, I'm sorry, that's a little earlier than I thought. He was defeated in his first try for the U.S. House of Representatives in 1824, but was elected in 1826 and re-elected in 1828. He broke with Jackson over land issues and Indian policies and was defeated by a Jackson supporter in 1830. In 1832, he was re-elected to a third term, this time as an anti-Jacksonian Democrat. Now, I don't know what Crockett thought about the, <laughs> the central bank, but I'm sure there were other issues of the time. His popularity and legend grew, and Crockett's disagreements with President Jackson grew as well. Said Crockett on the floor of the house, I have not got a dog collar around my neck marked with the name Andrew Jackson on it. He later said it was expected of me to bow to the name of Andrew Jackson, even at the expense of my conscience and judgment. Such a thing was new to me and a total stranger to my principles. By the mid-1830s, Crockett was so popular, particularly with the masses, that Whig leaders began talking about how this principled frontiersman would make the perfect foil to Jackson's hand-picked successor, the officious President-Vice President Martin Van Buren. 
Talk turned to serious conversation about Crockett being on a national ticket in 1836, but instead he was killed at the Alamo that very year. I don't think Jackson had anything to do with that. We have not looked into the details of the disagreements between Andrew Jackson and Davy Crockett. However, we do believe that this early and rather quaint account certainly shows how quickly such questions and disputes arose in the governance of this nation and how they were dealt with in a Christian manner. Government benefits and distributions of taxpayer money were seen as charity, which they are, and government-enforced charity is nothing more than a disguised form of Marxism. The nation did not learn from Crockett's lesson, of course, and we have been living in a disguised Marxist system now for well over a hundred years. Americans admire their constitution to this very day, but they have no idea how far the nation has parted from the original intentions of its founders. The constitution is vanity, and it has always been vanity because men alone cannot possibly retain its original meaning and purpose, especially when they were divided over that meaning and purpose from the very beginning. No piece of paper can protect men from tyranny. It is only by the grace of God that we have not all been reduced to the poverty of India or Africa at the hands of the Jews who have so easily subverted any form of the governments of men in whatever nation they have been allowed to dwell. This concludes the 29th segment of our presentation of the Protocols of Satan. If Yahweh our God is willing, we will resume the series in mid-May. Next Saturday, it is Pastor Mark Downey, and two Saturdays from now, it is Donald Fox. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.